This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We need to make sure, and I think we can all agree, we need to protect our kids uh, online. Now, how to go about do that is a very careful balance. We need to make sure we're protecting freedom of expression. We need to make sure we're protecting uh, the freedoms and the rights of Canadians while we protect kids. That's why we've spent years working with different community groups, with advocates, with minority communities, with experts, with uh, people in, in all sorts of different backgrounds to make sure that what we're doing is actually protecting kids. And I look forward to putting forward that online, online harms bill, which people will see is very, very specifically focused on protecting kids and not on uh, censoring the internet as misinformation tends to try and uh, uh, characterize it as. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last week as he responded to questions about the forthcoming online harms bill. That bill will drop on Monday, several hours after this podcast is first released. I certainly plan to cover the bill extensively in the months ahead, but treat this episode as a bit of an advanced backgrounder, the context for what is likely to become the most controversial of the government's internet bills. This episode is going to proceed in three parts. First, I want to provide a bit of the background and context, the history behind the bill, so that the debate over it can be understood within that broader framing. I'll then touch on what are likely to be some of the key provisions in the bill, and then finally conclude with where the debate seems to be going, the online harms bill versus Bill S-210, the bill designed to require age verification to access sites that make available sexually explicit material or pornography for which Pierre Polyev expressed support this past week. That seems to set up a battle with the government supporting its online harms legislation and Polyev and the Conservatives supporting Bill S-210. So first, the history behind online harms legislation in Canada. And for that, we have to go back really several years. The government first decided to make an extensive move into internet-based regulation, the heritage minister at the time was Stephen Guibault, and the expectation was that there were going to be three different bills. There'd be a bill on online streaming, which became Bill C-10 and then later Bill C-11. There'd be a bill to deal with online news, which of course became Bill C-18. And then there'd be a bill to deal with online harms. I think in the view of the government, it was going to proceed in order of difficulty to a certain extent. C-10 or C-11, the streaming bill and the news bill, were not viewed as particularly controversial. The concern, if there was any concern about the political capital that would be needed to pass this legislation, largely focused on online harms, which I think was recognized as potentially or likely controversial, given the challenge of balancing new rules to create some protections and safeguards against online harms as against the privacy and expression issues that could be implicated by some of those rules. Now, in the case of Bill C-10, many of you will recall that government introduced that streaming bill back in 2020, wasn't expected to be particularly controversial and was largely sailing through was framed as legislation designed to bring large streaming services like Netflix into the system, went through a series of hearings where 
the various concerns that were raised about the bill, and I was one of the people raising some of those concerns, were largely ignored. Bill goes to clause by clause review, where the government goes into or the committee goes through a review of each clause and has to approve it and consider potential amendments. And it was at that stage that suddenly that bill blew up. There was an attempt to remove one of the safeguards that would have kept user content out of the bill. Once that gets removed, suddenly the bill becomes very controversial and, of course, does actually pass the House, doesn't pass the Senate, dies with the election call, and we're left with Bill C-11 sometimes later, which also goes through its its own series of challenges in both the House and the Senate before it ultimately passes. Now, I, I bring back all of this history in part because when the controversy first hit with respect to Bill C-10, it was the Heritage Minister, Stephen Guibault, that was really responsible for trying to defend the legislation and respond to the concerns that were being raised. And I think it's fair to say that, that most felt he did a, frankly, terrible job. He was a poor communicator on this issue, didn't seem to fully understand even the legislation that he was talking about. And I think part of the challenge that that legislation faced was that the response from the responsible minister wasn't good enough. And it, I think, led some within government to realize that if this was what was happening on a bill that shouldn't have been particularly controversial, imagine what might happen with a bill that really was going to be controversial in online harms when faced with dealing with competing objectives, such as dealing with harms, but at the same time, ensuring that there's appropriate safeguards for expression and for privacy. And so the government decides, I think, to shelve the introduction of the bill, in part because there wasn't an effective communicator behind it. They do, it should be noted, just before the House rises for the summer, back in 2021, introduce a bill, Bill C-36, it comes on the very last day, quite literally in the last hours of that session, and it would prove to be the very end of the session as an election call comes some weeks later. And that bill, Bill C-36, I think is often confused with the government's online harms efforts. Bill C-36 was a bill that was designed to amend the Criminal Code, the Canadian Human Rights Act, and the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And those changes were focused on creating what they described as new legislative options to address hate promotion and protect people from hate crimes. The most important element of that bill was adding a new Section 13 to the Canadian Human Rights Act, which made it a discriminatory practice to communicate or cause to be communicated hate speech by the Internet or by other means of telecommunications. In other words, it sought to bring in online hate directly into the Canadian Human Rights Act. Now, there were many groups that had been pushing for that for some time, and the government, as I say, chose to introduce it quite literally at the very end of the session, knowing that an election was about to be called. And so it was, frankly, little more than window dressing. It had no realistic prospect of, of being passed. And I can distinctly recall attending a stakeholder call from justice officials about a day later. So the House had already risen for the summer, but officials were left to explain this legislation. And the anger on the call from many of the groups who had been looking for, hoping for this kind of legislation, only to find it put forward at the very last moment when it had no chance of being passed. There were people who were very upset, realizing that this was little more than theater, and they didn't like the, the fact that the government was using this issue 
simply for some limited political gain, but without a, a serious vision of how it was actually going to get passed. I should note, and we'll come to it when we come to a, a preview of the bill itself, that it is likely that the provisions that were found in Bill C-36 will make their way into the legislation that the government introduces this week. In any event, that's Bill C-36, and, and I reference it in part because there have been any number of instances where people have talked about what the government previously did on online harms. And there's this sense that they introduced a bill and they often focus on Bill C-36. But that wasn't really the online harms bill. It wasn't the online harms bill. The online harms bill was never introduced. Instead, what took place was the government launched a consultation about a month later at the very end of July 2021. That consultation ran throughout the election process, because about a week later, the government calls an election. We had the election of, of that summer. Throughout that period, there is a consultation on the government's online harms plans. And I think that the, the government's inclusion of a commitment to move forward with online harms within the first hundred days of its mandate reflects the fact that its view was that they had now or were in the process of consulting on the bill. They had a pretty clear idea of what it is that they wanted to do. And so this would not be a particularly difficult commitment to me, in part because they already knew what they wanted to do. They were just now running through this consultation. They could just now move ahead with, with the online harms bill. The problem with the consultation was was really twofold. There was a, a process-related problem with it, and that was both the fact that it was running throughout the this election campaign, which seemed to effectively say they were going to bind, in certain respects, the future government. And of course, during the election, you didn't necessarily know who would form that government. But even more, the consultation read really strangely, particularly for consultations, which typically present the issue as an educational piece, and then provide a series of options that the government might be considering. In this case, it was pretty clear that the government had already made up its mind. It presented various issues. It said, here's by and large what we're thinking of doing, and what do you think? And so it didn't really feel, feel like much more than just a checkbox exercise. But I think that much to the government's surprise, in fact, I know much to the government's surprise, the reaction from just about everybody who participated in this consultation was almost universally negative. About 90% or more of the individuals who responded, responded negatively. But even more, many of the groups that responded, in fact, the very groups that the government thought they would get support from when it came to this legislation, were also harshly critical of, of its proposed plans. And so it didn't take long, I don't think, for those within the department, and it was Department of Canadian Heritage at the time, to recognize that they had a problem on their hands. Their plans didn't enjoy support, even from the groups that they thought would be supportive of the legislation. I think it's important to recognize that the government's perspective at the time, whether on online harms or news or streaming, was to paint this as a battle between the government and big tech. Big tech was viewed as evil, and the government was going to come in and put big tech in its place, either by requiring it to make payments and uh, in the news side to make both payments and prioritize certain content through discoverability on the streaming side or bring new kinds of penalties and requirements when it came to online harms. I think the problem with that and the problem more broadly with much of what it had in mind here 
was that it took cobbled together a whole series of different proposals from other jurisdictions, some of which were themselves, I think, quite problematic. And there were many that I think were left deeply concerned with what the government had in mind. It didn't feel well thought out. It felt like just positioning against big tech with this mishmash of various provisions, very few of which were viewed as, as addressing the issues in a positive way. So government gets this negative response. It takes a while to actually provide the feedback. In fact, the government does not provide the actual responses it got to the consultation. Instead, it produces a what we heard report in which it seeks to summarize it. Some of you may know that some months later, I was able to obtain the actual submissions that it received under an access to information request. And I think it's fair to say that the government, even in its what we heard report, significantly understated the objections and the uh, and the disagreement with the approaches that it planned to take. In any event, faced with the negative response to its plans on online consultation, to its credit, the government says we're going to have to hit the reset button. It shelves the approach or at least parks it to the side and identifies a new track to reconsider the issue. It does so in a number of ways. In the spring of 2022, at the same time, it announces the creation of a new expert panel that is charged with examining a range of the online harms related issues. Now, this panel is a little different from some of the other kinds of panels or external experts that the government sometimes bring in. They aren't asked to produce an actual report. Instead, they meet, I think it was for about 10, 10 times uh, over a period of several months, different issues each time. The document that they have to consider is made public. A summary of their discussions is made public. And the department tries to both summarize those discussions and then tries to summarize some of the, the takeaways as well. For more on that process, I did a podcast with Emily Laidlaw, a professor at the University of Calgary, who was the co-chair of that panel uh, around that same time. In any event, the panel engages in discussion on these various issues. There's agreement on some issues. There's disagreement on others. The government tries to focus on areas where there is some amount of agreement. And then once that panel concludes, which was by the late spring, early summer of 2022, it then proceeds to have a whole series of, of roundtables across the country with both the minister and parliamentary secretary meeting with people in different communities again to, it seems, build up some support around online harms. And so it was expected, I think, out of 2022 that this process would lead last year in 2023 to bringing forward this online harms bill. But of course, we're here in 2024 and it is only going to be introduced as this podcast drops later today. And that delay, I think, is attributable, again, to at least a couple of issues. One is the challenges that C11 and C18 face. And so the expectation was, I think, that C11 would move quite quickly, C18 would not be particularly controversial, and that the heritage minister, who was Pablo Rodriguez at the time, and later, of course, would become uh, Minister St. Ange, was that they would be able to turn their attention to online harm soon after those two bills wrapped up. Those bills took much longer than expected. C11 passed in the spring of 2023 and is still the subject of considerable hearings taking place at the CRTC. C18 took until the summer to pass, but of course there was all the battles with the regulations, the disputes with both Meta and Google, which ran throughout the course of the entire year. 
And I think as these issues became protracted, internally, the government began to recognize that leaving this exclusively in the hands of Canadian heritage uh, was an issue, that it was going to be challenging for a minister to devote sufficient time to it. And the new justice minister, Arif Arani, was someone who had been engaged in online harms earlier as a parliamentary secretary. So they had a justice minister who was pretty engaged already in these issues. And so while never announced publicly, the government makes the decision to hand off primary responsibility over to the Department of Justice and that minister. And in fact, when the bill is introduced later today on on Monday afternoon, it will be Justice Minister Varani who does the introduction. Now, interestingly, he is now also a minister of state for online harms. And so this, this just took place also in the last week or so. And that appears to be an effort to ensure that he can actively engage with Canadian heritage officials. And so while the minister introducing the bill has changed, many of the officials who are active on the issue quite clearly has not. It quite clearly is still heritage that played the key role in developing much of this legislation. They are, in fact, the responsible for the media briefing, for the technical briefings that are scheduled to take place uh, soon after the legislation is introduced. And the structure that seems to have been created is the justice minister responsible for the bill, but still in now in a position to actively engage with staff and personnel within Heritage who will play a significant role as part of it. So that's a bit of the process that has taken place that leads us up to this bill that is going to be introduced from where we're at. So that, of course, raises the question of what is likely to be in the bill. And for that, we've got some media leaks. And of course, we've got the prior consultation to give us a sense of where this is likely to go. Now, I think we know at a minimum the framing for this legislation. The framing will not be big tech is evil, although there certainly may well be references to that or references to the need to bring big tech into the fold with respect to regulation and the kind of responsibility that it faces. But more, I think the emphasis is, as we heard off the top from the prime minister, is going to be very much focused on this is designed to protect children. And so the changes that we see from where the consultation was at to what this bill includes will be primarily, I think, children focused. And indeed, I would expect that the, the marketing and the framing of this legislation will be very much focused on children. The prior consultation, what did it include and what were some of the complaints about it? And well, what, which of those provisions might survive into this new bill? Now, there were some provisions that I think are pretty unlikely to survive. It included new obligations as part of this consultation. It envisioned creating new requirements to implement measures to identify harmful content. If you were um, a platform, it was actually described in the legislation as what was known as an OCS, an online communication service. They may well use the same language again, in this bill. And you were required, if you were an OCS, to implement measures to identify harmful content and to respond to any content that was flagged by a user within 24 hours. This was provisions that was borrowed from Germany and its NetsDG law. It raised real due process concerns about the prospect of content being removed within 24 hours without any pro proper review. And I would expect, or at least I would hope, that we will see some tweaks to those provisions in the forthcoming bill. 
The government in its consultation also envisioned proactive monitoring and reporting requirements. So it basically wanted these OCSs, these online communication services, to actively monitor their systems and to report essentially on an automated basis over to law enforcement uh, where it identified some of these issues. This raised huge concerns with large numbers of groups. The idea of using AI-based systems, because it would be AI-based systems, to identify what it would potentially be content covered by the legislation and report it to law enforcement was viewed as incredibly risky. And I don't think that that will make its way back into the legislation. There was also a whole governance-related element to all of this, creating effectively a digital safety commissioner that was borrowed from the Australian model, who would be empowered to hear hearings on the issues, issue non-compliance-related findings, and, and broad powers to order communication, these online communication services to do, do anything. So it was both complaints mechanisms and, and the power to issue orders. We will no doubt see something similar in this legislation. It will be important, I think, to look at what the actual powers are, uh, whether or not they some of those have been scaled back. But at a minimum, a governance structure that includes the ability to file complaints, I think, is a virtual certainty. It's really more around the investigative side that I think there may be some questions. There is, I think, also likely to be uh, penalties. That That is certain. So there will be administrative and monetary penalties for noncompliance. The question will be, where do these trigger? You know, they'll certainly trigger if you fail to meet the standards that are established in the legislation. I think one can expect the prior proposal included those kinds of penalties for failure to block or remove content. Will we see those same provisions within the bill? I suppose that remains to be seen. Uh, there was also website blocking that was included in the last legislation with the prospect of orders that all Canadian ISPs block access to potentially to online communication services. Now, that those online blocking issues were also, I think, viewed uh, with some amount of skepticism, actually more than skepticism, with real concern. I don't know, and it remains to be seen whether or not they are brought back into this. And so that was part of what was in the consultation. There was even more regulatory structure. The privacy tribunal envisioned by Bill C-27 was included in it. There was a, a new Digital Recourse Council of Canada was included in it. So there was a lot of governance structure in the initial proposal. We'll have to see if some of that remains or how much of that remains. Should be noted, I suppose, that virtually all of this was to be paid for by the online communication services, the platforms themselves. If you did business, you'd have to pay into a system that would cover all of this enforcement. So that was what was initially envisioned. As I say, some of it will certainly come back. Uh, certainly some of the governance will be back, uh, to be sure. And I think that we can expect that certainly some of the issues that get covered will, will be there as well. Um, but we've already got a number of hints of what we're likely to see. And of course, in a future podcast, we'll be dealing directly with what's in there. But in this child-focused piece of legislation, what can we expect? I should note that the initial consultation dealt specifically with so-called unlawful speech, uh, harms that were already part of the criminal code or already dealt with uh, in some legal fashion. And so the focus was on harms such as spreading hateful content, propaganda, violence, sexual exploitation of children, and non-consensual distribution of intimate images. 
there was nothing on misinformation or disinformation, the so-called content that would be viewed as awful but lawful. It raises real concerns, real harms. Bullying might well be another example, but was still legal um, in terms of not being addressed within the legislation, was left outside of this particular piece of legislation. I think there's some expectation that we will see an expanded list. In fact, there have been already reports that the list will expand, but the expansion will be largely around issues related to children. So if the consultation initially identified five issues, there are reports that this will be expanded to seven types of harmful content, uh, and that will include very much a focus on minors or on kids child sexual exploitation content, content that induces a child to harm themselves, and content that is used to bully a child. And it's those last two around inducing a child to harm themselves and content used to bully a child, which are the new additions, as it were, uh, to what the government initially included. But if that's it, that does point to the fact that certain other kinds of online harms will not be addressed here. There are, of course, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, issues around what is otherwise lawful content. And I suspect will mean that there will be some who will be left disappointed, some who are concerned that it is venturing into some of these new issues, but then there will be others that say it's not doing nearly enough in terms of what the perceived harms from, from online harms are. So we won't, I don't think, see, and we've seen reports on this as well, we won't see misinformation or disinformation dealt with this issue. Um, we will see more on the child side, and we will see an administrative structure that includes uh, complaints mechanisms and presumably some enforcement. So we'll look more into the bill once it's actually introduced, but really this podcast was designed to stand on its own to understand how it is that the government has arrived at the kind of structure that we're going to see within this bill, um, a bill that I, I suppose I should have mentioned is, is likely to be called Bill C-63. Now, finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't also make reference to Bill S-210. The Senate bill that has already passed the Senate is now in the House, uh, was covered just a few weeks ago in an interview with Senator Julie Maville Deschaine, uh, who is the senator who introduced this legislation and has been its most vocal supporter. It's legislation designed to ensure that children can't access pornography or sexually explicit images. And that legislation has entered into the debate in large measure because at roughly the same time as the prime minister was talking about online harms, there was a question posed to the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, about whether or not he supported new legislation to create age verification requirements for access to pornographic sites. And he offered a terse yes when, when asked that question. That suggests that the party continues to support Bill S-210. And you may recall that when that bill came to second reading in the House, it enjoyed the support of the NDP, the Bloc, the Conservatives, and a handful of Liberal MPs. The government itself does not support it. They instead are supporting their online harms bill, this likely to be Bill C-63. So they are not on side with age verification requirements. The Conservatives are. Now, I've made the argument repeatedly that this bill is a dangerous bill, Bill S-210. That's not to say that there will not be concerns with Bill C-63, with the online harms bill. I think it's fairly certain that 
even with the government's attempt to address some of the concerns that came out of the consultation, it is likely that uh, there will still be issues. And I think there will be many months to talk about what some of those issues are and how the bill might be amended or tweaked. But in the case of Bill S-210, it requires, frankly, either a complete overhaul and and really should should just die. It's legislation that is good-hearted in the sense that dealing with that issue of trying to prevent kids from accessing pornography, one can well understand. But the way in which it goes ahead and tries to do that raises, I think, even bigger concerns than the problem itself. Just to repeat, there are at least three. And I say this in part because I think that there, the debate itself in the coming weeks will be framed to a certain extent around two visions of how to deal with online arms. You've got the likely Bill C-63 vision, what the government puts forward as part of online harms. And then you've got Bill S-210 coming coming out of the Senate, but for which the conservatives are providing support. My guess would be that we will see the other two parties, the Bloc and the NDP, frankly, support both of these bills as opposed to being asked to choose one or the other. But there are three major issues that arise in the context of Bill S-210 that I think people should keep in mind. The first or that is the technology itself, the use of age verification. The bill itself does not specify particularly which technology will be used. It recognizes that it's going to leave that to regulations, which itself, I think, raises some potential issues. But we ought to recognize that at least as structured right now, the technology is just not fit for purpose. That's the conclusion that Australia came to when it was considering this kind of legislation. And, and the reason for that is, if we're talking about requirements that people upload government ID, either to a pornography site or more likely to a third party that provides these ID services, that raises very real privacy and security related issues. And it's kind of obvious if you're taking what is very clearly personal information and government ID, there are risks, of course, of security breaches. Uh, there are real legitimate concerns about handing that information over to these unknown third parties, most of which or virtually all of which aren't even located within Canada. If we're talking instead about not requiring the uploading of that, but rather facial scanning type technologies that at times may try to guess the age, those technologies aren't bad if they're trying to distinguish between a 25-year-old and a 16-year-old. And the companies that offer up this technology often will cite their effectiveness, but they use roughly that kind of framing, people in their 20s versus people in their teens. The problem, of course, is that that's not the use case here. The use case is trying to distinguish between someone who is 16 or 17 and someone who's 18. Technology doesn't work nearly as well when we're dealing with that kind of use case. And the problem here is it means that there well, may well be many who find themselves shut out of lawful content based on a technology that just is not ready, at least not yet. Never mind the concerns of normalizing facial scanning and facial recognition, which this legislation would do. But it isn't just that. This legislation is also not just about pornography sites. It's far broader. And as you heard on the podcast with the senator, it includes search engines like Google, social media like Twitter, and chat boards like Reddit. It includes any site because there's no thresholds here at all. It's anyone that makes sexually explicit materials available. Other jurisdictions have created thresholds to limit it just to pornography sites. This bill does not do that and raises the prospect of age verification 
for you when you use search or when you use social media, which I think is enormously problematic. And finally, there is a third element, one that it is possible it, this issue will be shared with the online harms bill, and that's website blocking. In the context of Bill S-210, it envisions the prospect of court orders to require website blocking of non-compliant sites, sites located outside of the country. That system of court-ordered website blocking, I think, raises real concerns. I have concerns and, or will have concerns if we see it resurface in Bill C-63 and the online harms bill. Uh, either way, that move towards blocking content and potentially blocking lawful content, I think, is one that, that ought to be opposed. And so this bill will, I think, be part of the debate. It's obviously advanced further than the bill that's just about to be introduced. But either way, I suspect that both of these bills will be the subject of, of considerable debate and discussion, and I think have the unfortunate effect of politicizing this, not that it wasn't going to be politicized to begin with, but politicizing it in such a way that makes actual reform of either bills less likely, where you get two parties that kind of go to their respective corners and say, our approach is the better approach and have a reluctance to hear constructed criticism either on Bill S-210 or even more on the online harms bill on Bill C-63. So this is an issue that I'd say is going to take up a lot of people's, I think, time, energy for those that are focused on digital policy in the months ahead. I wanted to use this podcast to provide a, a bit of a backgrounder and advanced preview and one can expect that in the weeks and months ahead, we'll certainly return to the legislation and have a chance to bring in a series of perspectives and, and identify where some of those issues are. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.